Welcome to What We Give, a podcast that highlights the remarkable ways people are contributing to their community. I'm John McKay, the MP for scarborough Gilwood. This episode features Superintendent Dave Rizik from the Toronto Police Service. He's the unit commander of Scarborough 43 Division, born and raised in Scarborough. He served as a police officer for the past 30 years in all three of Scarborough's police divisions. He's passionate about developing community programs such as the Mobile Crisis Intervention Team and the Neighborhood Officer Program. These programs directly support, assist, and empower communities to deal more effectively with the root causes of crime. Here's my conversation with David. Um, so where were you um, where were you raised, David? Uh, well, I was born and raised up in and around Thompson Park, so that Grimley, Lawrence, Grimley, and Ellesmere area, uh, off of Dorcott in there. Um, like I was saying to you before, I went to Dave and Mary Thompson Collegiate. That was my high school. Well, that's too bad. You know, I went to Laurier and... Uh, oh, you did? Yeah, and we didn't like David and Mary. You weren't one of our huge competitors. Uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, back then it was Midland Collegiate, Cedar Bray, uh, yeah. things like that, right? So we didn't have much of a sports team other than our volleyball. Our volleyball was great provincially, but everything else we were not that good at. So uh, good at our football. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, so born and raised uh, in Scarborough, and uh, like I was telling you earlier, I still have family here. My brother's raising his family uh, in Scarborough, not far from where we grew up, and my mom's still in the house that, that I was born, uh, was born and raised so in. So coming back to 43 Division is a little like coming home for you. A little bit. Uh, like I've, I've worked in uh, now all three different Scarborough Divisions, 41, 42, and 43, all at different ranks. So it is uh scarborough is home to me it always will be and uh so you know it'd be i'd be more than happy to finish my career here in 43 division if they'd let me but uh, uh just like i got here we go yeah. we're told uh, we're yeah. at the chief's beck and call well, and so as soon as you, as soon as you express a wish the uh super or the, the chief will make sure that it's not fulfilled yep. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was I was going over your uh, resume, and oh my goodness, uh, we'll, we could spend the next half hour just talking about your your uh, resume. It's very, very impressive. But uh, let me just see if I can uh, talk to you about your career from the standpoint of uh, what policing used to be when you started, and what policing is now. Um, and what uh, observations you made. So you you started out as a as a cadet at uh, Aylmer, and one of the, the the criticisms of police training at that time, and um, it seems to be coming out now, is that um, it in effect is um, a military training or a quasi military training. Um, that there's an emphasis on rank, and there's an emphasis on um, on orders being issued and orders being obeyed, and um, that has been a, a live criticism. Um, and I'll uh, I'll preface it by um, that question by saying that I chair the public safety committee, and we are doing a, um, a study into um, systemic race uh, systemic racism in policing, and I've thought. This is possibly one of the finest um, committees that I've sat on 
Um, and, um, and it's been a really uh, interesting in-depth look at um, policing and, um, and uh, the police representatives have been supremely articulate in talking about um, the issues of facing policing. So let me, let me start with that question about um, the, the growing view that possibly there is too much um, military training in, in policing. Well, certainly when, when I came on and before that, so I, I came on in, in 1990 uh, when I went to Elmer. And yeah, you're right. It was uh, very militaristic in the, uh, the training that we received, uh, the rules that we had to follow. Uh, again, you talked about the rank structure and, and that, all that still exists. You have to have that in, in a policing culture, but it, it is far more advanced from what it used to be as far as um, including people in decision-making. The rank structure is far looser than it ever has been. I mean, I just had one of our special constables come in here and just drop into my office and sit down and have a conversation with me. Never would have happened before. <laughs> you would probably mm. never have been able to have that access to your unit commander back in the day. Um, you know, as, as far as some of the, even the training and the tactics, we talk about uh, de-escalation and things like that. When I joined the job, um, there wasn't hardly any conversation talk about de-escalation training. Uh, there wasn't very much talk about uh, racial bias policing uh, or any, any, anything like that. It was emphasized on know your rules and regulations. And here's your binder that's, you know, the size of six encyclopedias that you have to memorize. Um, good luck. Um, it yeah. was um, it was know your authorities, right? So your powers mm -hmm. of arrest, the criminal code, Highway Traffic Act, Liquor License Act, and things like that. And it was go out there and enforce the laws and the bylaws. There mm -hmm. wasn't a lot of talk. And, and, and back in the 90s, that's when it slowly started to change. But there wasn't a lot of talk about community-based policing um back in the day and that has certainly evolved my first part of my career so i spent the first uh eight years of my career in 41 division i worked in uniform in the front lines answering radio calls going to those 911 calls i uh, did some training in our criminal investigative bureau and then i worked in the major crime uh unit which is the undercover unit in, in the divisional level and um, for about four years and then spent another year and a half in the drug squad. You could not have sold me on community policing back then. I just wanted to go out and arrest the bad guys. That was mm -hmm. what I had uh, been taught. Uh, that is what I wanted to do. Uh, that's what I thought would make the difference in the communities. If you got rid of the, the criminals out there, then the rest of the citizens that were law-abiding would be able to use those public spaces uh, without fear of crime uh, or any type of retribution or assaults. Uh, they feel safe in their homes. That was my belief because that's the way I you know, focused my career. But when I got promoted to sergeant, I got transferred down to 55 division, which is a very unique division in the central part of, of, of Toronto there, which encompasses many, many different communities. So you've got the beaches, Right, quite affluent down there. Uh, you've got uh, Greek towns, the Danforth. Um, you had uh, Riverdale, but then you had uh, the old part of uh, Coxwell, Dundas, 
uh, Broadview, that Leslieville area that hadn't been really rejuvenated or uh, anything at that point. You know, in time. The developers hadn't got there yet. That's yeah. right. But that I ended up going into what was the, called the community response unit back then. And uh, after I got promoted and that's a very, uh, you're a politician, but very uh, politically connected and charged community back in the day. Hmm. My politicians, city councillors, not back then, were Jack Layton, who I knew very, very well and worked very closely with. Um, Tom Jack. You have my sympathies. Yes. <laughs> Actually, Jack Layton was very. Jack's very, a good he, guy. He was yeah. a actual, a very a gentleman. I may not have agreed yeah. always on on some of the politics, but one thing I could say about him, he was an absolute gentleman. Uh, yeah, but Tom Jacobic, um, Sandra Boston, uh, Paula Fletcher's still there. Uh, folks like that very connected mm -hmm. to their communities, communities very connected to them. And I saw, um, you know, the demand in a lot of their police service, right? Mm -hmm. And I saw the difference uh, that it made in having those conversations and those connections with your community. Um, as much as, or even more important than it was to go out and arrest the criminals, yeah. Yeah. right? You had to have those relationships with your community partners and your politicians, but particularly your, your, your residents in your community because if they've lost faith in, in policing and that, um, they're not going to call you. And how are you ever going to solve a crime if they don't call you? So that was my first taste of it. So the first half of my career almost was spent undercover investigations, arresting criminals. And probably after that, the focus of my, my the rest of my career has been community-based. And mm -hmm. I've seen the difference it makes um, in the relationships and the safety in our communities by having those strong ties and those strong relationships that's why i'm a big proponent of the neighborhood community officer program as well right so yeah. we have it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting idea that you know the the day of 1990 is not the day of 2020 and i wonder if uh, the day of 2020 was going to aylmer what would be the differences in his training or what would you you recommend uh, to uh, Aylmer to uh, change the training of a police officer um, at Aylmer? Well, they've already begun it. I mean, they've been doing it for years, right? You've got to have more community focused uh, um, type training. So relationship building, uh, alternative alternative measures, alternative service delivery models to folks. So, I mean, we're, we're out there and we are, going to radio calls where we used to walk away. That's not a policing matter. Um, that might be something to do. Maybe the person's homeless or maybe they've got a substance abuse problem, but they haven't broken the law. It's not a criminal matter or anything like that. We'd walk away. We don't mm -hmm. walk away anymore. We have yeah. great partnerships and relationships with other service delivery uh, agencies, You know, whether it's youth outreach workers or mental health professionals, uh, you know, uh, people that so are. So, is this, is this the uh, mobile crisis intervention units? No, no, that's that's a separate piece that's too. Separate but okay. um, you know, that's partnership with the hospitals and, and a different different service delivery model for people that are um, you know suffering from uh, crisis, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But it, no, this is this is like where before we just walk away. That's not a you know that's not a policing issue. We now are making referrals, so we we've we've got. Um, relationships with a lot of these different agencies, some of which I just mentioned there, where we can make a direct referral to that agency. So instead of walking away, it's not criminal now, but you know what? 
probably the next radio call or the next time we run into you or the third time, it might become criminal because nobody ever intervened in, in, in the midterm, right? In the interim. Right. Now right. we're making those we're making those referrals. But for, for Elmer, um, you know, the de-escalation training, emphasis on mental health, emphasis on um, racially biased policing and, and, and how everybody does have biases, whether they're perceived or known uh, to themselves. Um, the neighborhood policing model, right? That neighborhood community officer model where we are embedded in communities and there's ownership there for an extended period of time, as opposed to every six months, you're gonna get a new police officer coming in who has to try and rebuild that trust uh, with the community again, um, understand the problems that they're facing in that. So we are evolving, we're changing. So um, Elmer might not be there yet. The Ontario Police College might not be there yet, but they are, um, they are changing. moving forward, eh? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, and, it's and, and the, the, the other thing is they're training police officers for right across the province and what works in Scarborough doesn't necessarily work in Halliburton, for instance. Um, they're just different kinds of ideas altogether. All I was just, um, while you were talking there, I was, I was thinking about the, the, the overall issue of, of um, citizen trust. Because a number of these interventions have gone sideways in the last little while, and of course the what the, the interventions that go sideways are the ones that hit the newspapers, and uh, well, who reads newspapers anymore? I guess <laughs> hit the media. The yeah, yeah, go online, and um, and the uh, the problem is because it's instantaneous, there is absolutely zero analysis of what was actually going on, and six months later, somebody issues a report and. Um, Yet all of the opinions have already been pre, have been baked in, and right. it, generally it doesn't work well for the the police. So, so tell me uh, what's your your observation on some of these uh, interventions, which are um, quasi criminal at the best, but like you rightly say. These aren't really criminal code offenses. These aren't uh, these aren't um, these aren't interventions that uh, that police officers necessarily uh, you know, that you need a police officer for. Right. So we we've there's a couple things. So um, in my previous job over at the Community Partnerships and Engagement Unit, I oversaw a multitude of different portfolios, right, which included mental health portfolio, so MCIT, Mobile Crisis Intervention Teams, and I'm still connected to that. Um, which I'm glad to say we're we're pushing hard to to expand uh, that partnership with the hospitals and hopefully put some more teams on the road for more hours um, and enhance training for our frontline folks as well. But um, there are a lot of incidents where um, we get called, right, and police go, it's not really a policing matter. Underlying issues, whether, again, mental health is is, is tops on yeah. that list. Um, right. But one of the portfolios I, I oversaw was, it's called FOCUS. And I don't know if you've heard of that or not, John, but I mean, it, it stands for Furthering Our Communities, Uniting Services. So that is a partnership between the United Way, Toronto Police Service, and the City of Toronto. What And we are all equal partners in that. Now, what we have is, is we have what we call these situation tables, some people call them hubs, um, where those incidents that you're talking about, maybe it's repeat calls for service somewhere, 
Um, it could be somebody suffering from mental health. It could be substance abuse. It could be a multitude of factors that are causing them to be at what we call an acutely elevated risk. So they haven't already broken the law or been involved criminally in some criminality. Uh, it's only a matter of time, right? It's escalating to that point where they're right. that acutely elevated risk. So these tables, we have them all over the city. So we've got one that, that services 51 division. That's uh, our downtown east. We've got one out in 42, and now 43 is just joined to that table as of uh, two weeks ago. Um, there's one out downtown in, in uh, 1452 and 11 division, as well as up in Black Creek uh, in 31, and one out in 23 division. Super, super successful. We've got over 110 partner agencies that sit at those tables, everyone from you know, KMH to the Gernstein Clinic to youth outreach workers to the schools to um, employment agencies to the shelter system, probation, parole, uh, you name it, run the gamut, right, of community agencies and city agencies that sit at these tables. And we bring situations forward, just like what you're talking about. So, um, and we present them at the table. And the people that are best suited to do an intervention and offer resources, um, put their hand up and say, yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll take that one. Like an example would be, you know what, I, and it's so, it's very de-identified. The police, believe it or not, we bring 70% of the cases to the table. And, and obviously we're the ones that are out there 24 seven um, running into a lot of these individuals that could use some help that, you know, haven't broken the law yet, but might in the future. And we walk away with uh, about 10% of them. 65% of those cases that come forward, there is an underlying mental health issue is, is the base cause of them being at this acutely elevated risk, right? right. So mm -hmm. for us as a policing agency, you know, 70% of the cases that we're running into, we're taking to this table and we're only really staying attached to about 10% when we leave. All the other agencies are taking up and are, are better suited to offer uh, services to that individual. Give me, give me a practical example of that, preferably out of uh, 43 division, but if uh, anonymized so that people listening to what you're talking about get a, get a feel for how you're approaching these um, uh, not really non-police situations. Yeah, so let's let's just say uh, a good example would be, uh, and this is how it kind of would be presented to the table. Um, you know, I've got a male between the ages of 18 and 30, uh, lives on his own, is, uh, is diagnosed as schizophrenic. Uh, we've had uh, numerous calls to the address in regards to disturbances where he's uh, bothering neighbors, he's up and down the hallways, uh, he's causing noises, he's, he thinks he's seeing things, um, he's having hallucinations. But it's all hours of the night. He was, uh, you know, uh, seen outside of the apartment in the winter time, uh, without any any shoes on, things like that. Hasn't broken the law yet, okay? But he's in an agitated state. He is uh, engaging with other residents in the building. Um, they're fearful of those engagements because they're somewhat aggressive. But no threats. Hasn't been assaultive or anything like that. But could get there. You know, he's got an underlying mental health issue. He's not taking his medications. Uh, his, you know, let's just say his mother is involved in uh, his care, however, uh, has indicated that he won't listen to her and he's not taking his medication. Um, but when he does take his medication, 
is high functioning and able to hold down a job and look, you know, take care of herself and all that. So we would bring that to the table and it, you know, you might get KMH or, you know, from uh, somebody from university and say, you know what, we can put a caseworker uh, on with him to make sure that he starts taking his medication that we'll follow up, you know, on a weekly basis to make sure he's taking his medications. Somebody else mm-hmm. might say, you know, uh, an employment agency, well, he's out of a job and he's, you know, and that's causing anxiety, whatever. Uh, we can, we're an employment agency. Uh, maybe we can, we'll work with him to try and find him a job placement somewhere that whatever it might be. Um, things of that nature, right? So then they have to do that intervention within 24 hours and do that engagement. And then they have to report back. The table meets once a week. Um, they have to report back to the table the following week on what they've done, how the intervention went, and how um, th- those services are going. I can tell you that Ryerson is doing a study. Uh, hopefully, it's going to be out uh, sometime early in the new year. COVID, of course, has slowed everything down. But they right. they looked at our data and looked at these de-identified cases um, following you know a year prior to their uh, involvement with the focus table, um, and then the year after. So. No service intervention beforehand for a year. What did the calls for service look like? Um, things like that. How was the person uh, engaging with the community, his family, friends, whatever? Now they're connected to services. What does that look after? How many? What does that look like after? How many calls to police? How many calls to you know DAS, uh, paramedics, or anything like that? I can tell you that the data looks really, really good. That it shows that when you connect somebody that is at an acutely elevated risk with the correct services, they flourish, right? They do very, very well. And so ideal, ideally the police are working themselves out of work. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly, yeah. right? Um, yeah. why, are, why do we need to go to those calls um, if all the person really needs is some connection to services and some supports in place? Right. And there's lots right. of agencies out there that can offer those supports, right? So. Yeah. Hmm. Now, uh, you have uh, arrived at 43 Division. Actually, I should get you to describe the boundaries of 43 Division because just because you and I might know it doesn't mean that the people will be listening know what the boundaries of 43 Division are. Um, but uh, suffice to say, it uh, does encompass and quite a number of high need areas um, and maybe even high need high crime areas. Um, I'd be just interested in your observations as uh, the new guy in the block, who's not really all that new, um, and um, and uh, you come into a, uh, into a division. It is the middle of a pandemic um, as we speak, um, not a real end in sight, and um, lots of people unemployed. And uh, the Black Lives Matter um, movement is uh, is very significant issue for um, many of the people that you and I serve. So I'd be I'd be keen on your observations as to um, how you look at that um, as as the new um, the new superintendent here. And uh, and uh, give give me a, give me a, a feel for uh, your thinking and in, in that kind of a context. 
Well, we go back to the size of 43 Division. So 43 Division is one of the largest geographic and population-based divisions in the city. Uh, so we are cover the area of uh, everything south of the 401 from Brimley Road all the way to the Durham border, so over to Pickering, so right down to the lake. So very, very large area, very, very diverse area um, as far as you know the cultural makeup uh, of, of this division. Well, the whole city is the most diverse city in the world, but um, right. out, out here in 43 as well. And we do do certainly we do have some challenging neighborhoods um you know uh, dating myself but you can look at danzig you know you can look at some of those communities um you can look at uh you know just look at some of the areas where we've had some of our eglinton um, markham uh, ellesmere and markham and eglinton yep. you can look at uh um uh, you know up mornell court and and oftentimes um they are our priority neighborhoods now they call them neighborhood areas um, but uh, you know there are challenges there that's where we have focused a lot of our effort here in 43 with our again from my past job over at community partnerships and engagement unit overlooking and overseeing the neighborhood community officer program which we've expanded and enhanced uh, citywide um, last year uh, we have embedded officers in a lot of those particular communities uh, for a minimum of four years. So those residents that, that reside in those communities are not going to have to worry about, you know, Officer Mary or Officer Mike. Um, I just got to know them and they're gone again. They know yeah. that, you know, barring some unforeseen, you know, where they get promoted or something or, 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 you know, leave the job, they're going to have Officer and Mary and Officer Mike signed to their neighborhood for the next four years. And those officers are dedicated to that smaller geographic community um and that's their job they don't get pulled away you know the cn tower falls yeah but i mean they don't get pulled away to go down to that demonstration at the u.s embassy or to go down to you know the taste of the day and forth or or uh the jazz festival they stay in their communities 365 days a year right so having those folks uh embedded in those communities has made a big difference a in is, is that your is that your initiative or is that a citywide initiative? Uh, it's a citywide initiative that I was overseeing in my previous in my okay. previous role. So, so you're I, you're obviously a, a keener on that for forty three. Uh, that as well as focus, as well as mobile crisis intervention, all those different ones uh, portfolios that I had before. Of course, I'm um, yeah. I'm very passionate about them and I believe in them because I've seen the difference that they make. So. Um, so so when you reflect on it, do you think that that call from the chief is because you did all of those things in the past and that 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 was a unique need in 43? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Like, I don't want to get into uh, all the reasons why I came out here, but I mean, change is good sometimes for, for mm -hmm. folks. Uh, 43 had had a lot of change in their leadership over the last couple of years. And I think the chief wanted some stability here. I think the chief wanted to, um, again, uh, utilize my skill set from where I had worked in, in, you know, probably for the last 10 years, 12 years of my career uh, to come out here to 43 and some of the, the challenged areas and, and bring that and enhance that. And specifically enhance the, uh, the neighborhood community officer program out here, which uh, was, I think, probably lagging behind a little bit. 
but um, hmm. I'm glad to say it's back back on track now, right? So, well, uh, one of the biggest criticisms you hear is that the citizens uh, are afraid of police, and there's a loss of trust and things of that nature. Sure, uh, I would think that that kind of a program addresses um, those issues right up front. It's whether it's Mary or Mike, um, and they're there four or five years or however long their posting might might last, I should think that that, that should address some of the issues about uh, fear of the police and loss of trust. Yeah, you know, I, I, I always talk about the, the silent majority. I think the silent majority of folks out there do uh, trust the police. There's all kinds of surveys and things out there that, that talk about um how the community feels about their, their their police agency whether it's toronto or, or other agencies um then you have a vocal minority and that vocal minority are the are, are folks that have had perhaps negative interactions with the police over the years that silent majority for the most part go around about their daily business and might never ever have contact with the police in their entire life but they see things in the news you know if they had to call the yeah. police they know they're going to come it's winning over and trying to change perceptions on both sides with that vocal minority. And I think the neighborhood community officer program is, is a great way to do that in some of these communities um, because it does build trust and it does build relationships. It may not, the folks that are living there may not trust all police officers, but they trust their neighborhood officers. And so much so right. that the ownership, there's ownership on the neighbor, on the officer side for their community. And I've seen it over the years. I'm telling you, it's made the biggest difference in some of these neighborhoods is having uh, those neighborhood officers embedded in there because you can't help but have ownership. They know mm -hmm. tomorrow I've got to go back there and I've got to see those residents again and the next day and the next day and the next day. So they own, they're part of that community. They've become embedded in there. And, and vice versa with, with the community members, um, they might not like all the police officers, but like I said, they'll like those neighborhood officers. They even refer to them as my neighborhood officers. My cop. Right? My, don't, you know what? Don't take my neighborhood officers away. My yeah. neighborhood officers, which yeah. you know is a good thing. I think when they're asking for their neighborhood officers to stay there and don't take my neighborhood officers away, you know, it's, they've, they've included them as part of their community. I remember in another life I used to practice law and uh, and uh, you know the saying would be well you know all all lawyers are are crooks uh, except my guy or my gal is the case me oh, they're they're good lawyers, <laughs> they're good yeah, lawyers. Yeah. so so my own, my own I got the same thing with politicians you know all politicians are corrupt but oh my guy's okay I like him <laughs> yeah. I hope they keep on liking me that's a good question <laughs> so. Um, I keep giving the people of Scarborough Guildwood the opportunity to get rid of me, and they so far eight times they have declined to get rid of me. So I don't don't quite get it, but we'll 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 stay with the record. Well, whatever you're doing, you must be doing something right if they keep voting. Yeah. You know, if if I figure it out, you'll be the first to know, Dave. Well, there so, you go. Uh, yeah. So let me just finish up with uh, this question, and and it is kind of the elephant in the room, and um, and uh, and it has to do with systemic racism. Um, and systemic racism means something to, it seems to mean different things to different people, but there's kind of a, a feeling that, uh, that uh, somehow or another, by some means or another, the application of uh, the rule of law is uneven and, um, and falls disproportionately 
um, both in arrest sheets and in convictions and in incarceration on, um, on uh, for want of a better term, uh, racialized people. Um, I'd be interested in, in your reaction because you are, um, if you will, emblematic of, uh, of, uh, of, that, of that kind of a situation. And I'd be, be curious as to what your thoughts might be. As systemic racism is, you know, it doesn't fall solely on the shoulders of police. Like we are one entity in a system um, that, you know, if you, if you look back, um, you know, there's, there's lots of people that have a hand to play in where, why we're at where we're at right now, um, whether that's, you know, social housing or programs over the years or lack of uh, employment opportunities, the education system. Uh, but certainly policing is, is in there. Um, you know, I, I'd like to say, you know, is there racially biased policing going on right now in Toronto? Absolutely. Is it, uh, is it as bad as, uh, perhaps what it used to be? Absolutely not. Have we mm -hmm. taken great strides and steps in improving our training, which includes bringing in members of the community to help build and facilitate some of that training um, so that we can identify some of those, you know, perceived or not perceived biases that we have. Um, absolutely, we've done that. Uh, is there room to grow? Absolutely, but I think we all have a part to play in that, right? I mean, when you look at some of the reasons why um, you know, those marginalized communities and racialized communities uh, end up crossing paths with the law, much like what I talked about with our focus situations that go forward, there's so many underlying reasons that led them down that path where they've had that interaction with police, whether that's a lack of mental health supports, lack of employment, um, you know, the education system perhaps has, has, has failed them, um, you know, single parent family living in some of those communities and, and you or I can't even begin to understand the challenges. It's easy to say to, uh, you know, a young man or a woman living, you know, in, in uh, a, a Toronto community housing community or marginalized community uh, that, oh, just turn the, other, turn the cheek the other way. You don't have to join that gang, but you don't have to live there and face that yeah, every day, right. perhaps getting robbed, going to school every day and forced into these things. You know, sometimes they feel there is no other way out. Uh, but certainly, um, we are trying to do our very, very best, and we put in place a lot of different uh, new training and new units. We have a diversity and inclusion unit uh, that is headed up by Sue Lynn Knight, who is used to work for the, uh, the province uh, as their diversity and inclusion specialist there. And we've enhanced so much of our training um, proactively, you know, um, yeah, we have provincial standards we have to meet, but we are far ahead of that here in Toronto. So um, I believe we are making lots and lots of strides. I've worked very closely with all the different communities in my old role, and I continue to, whether it's the Muslim community, uh, the Black community, the Indigenous LGBTQ2S, um, South Asian, uh, East Asian, those were all roles that I played and I know leaders in all of those communities and I've had these difficult conversations with them. Uh, we are doing better than we used to, but is there room for improvement? Always. We're never going to be where we 
we need to be because you know continuous improvement is always needed so um, well, that's, that's actually probably a good place to leave it the, the prime minister is fond of telling us uh, in caucus uh, that we can always do better and um, and he he is right I think uh, we'll we'll put that down as the uh, uh, wisdom of Justin Trudeau but uh, uh, there is there, there is some some truth to it, but um, I want to thank you, uh, Dave, for uh, talking to me. Um, you are an immensely well-qualified police officer, and um, and uh, your journey from uh, all the various divisions out to forty-three division to um, implement some of the projects that you've been working on over the course of your career. Um, is in some respects a culmination of um, of your evolution as a police police officer, but also your um, uh, your thought process as a uh, as a human being. So, um, uh, thank you again for um, accepting the chief's call in July, and um, and uh, coming out here. Um, and uh, uh, it is a um, it does give confidence to uh, myself as a representative of the people of Scarborough Guildwood that um, that the policing is is uh, being handled by a, a person such as yourself. So, again, uh, thank you for that, and um, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, the next chat. Thanks for listening to What We Do. I'm John McKay. This podcast was produced by Amanda Capito with support from Lila Sharif and Anessa DeAngelis. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to What We Give on your favorite podcast player and leave us a review.